Our Father, as we come to your word today, we pray, God, that you would grow us in our faith, grow us in our confidence in you and in your promises, and teach us, Lord, to be comfortable with not being comfortable. Teach us, Lord, to be bold and yet humble, that we may do your work to glorify your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, turn to Genesis chapter 14. We're going to be continuing our study in the book of Genesis today. If you noted in the announcements, we are going to be having a membership class coming up here fairly soon, as soon as we've got some people signed up there. It's something that I usually do about once a year or so. Um, we have a membership class. And in our culture, there, there happens to be this tendency where we, we understand that church is not supposed to be just a country club. And it's not. And that's not what church membership is about in the least. But church membership is biblical, and one of the most important reasons that you can become a member of a church, whether it's this one or another one, is because by becoming a member, you are making a statement. You're making a statement that you belong to this body. You're making a statement that you want to be held accountable to this body. And you're putting yourself under the care of, of myself as the pastor and the, the board of elders and to everybody else in the church. You're saying, when you become a member, you're saying, if I, in a moment of, of sheer stupidity, slip into sin, I want you to come after me. Every child of God is a work in progress. There is no doubt about that. And that's something that I'm really thankful for because I look at where I am and I say, I am so thankful that God has not done with me. We are all a work in progress. Scripture clearly attests to the fact that even after God saves us, He continues saving us. In other words, after God declares a person just by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, after a person is justified, He's not done with them. He continues working in their lives. He continues growing them in Christ's likeness. He continues growing them in godly virtues through the personal circumstances in their lives. And one of the most difficult challenges that you're called to as a Christian is bringing restoration to a brother or sister in Christ who has fallen into sin. And I'm not just talking about incidental sin. Incidental sin would be, you know, uh, I, I'm out in traffic, and in the moment, my flesh gets to me because somebody just cut me off, and so I'm, I'm mad in the moment, and I repent. Okay, that's, that's incidental sin. That's not something that I have premeditated. It's not something that I've planned. It's not something that I, that I like to actually regularly do. No, it's something that I, I would hopefully repent of, that, that I would see it in myself, and that I would repent of it. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about somebody who gets cut off in traffic and they get mad. I'm talking about somebody who engages in willful, deliberate, premeditated, willful sin. And not only do most of us hate the idea 
of confronting somebody in their sin, somebody who, who, who has walked away, somebody who has gone astray from the Lord and is walking in the darkness. Most of us hate the idea of confrontation, and, and I, I hate it. I really do hate it. But not only that, but it makes us more aware of our own sin. And so you've got kind of a double whammy there where you're, you're fearing the, the idea of confronting somebody in their sin, which in our culture is a no-no. You don't go to somebody and tell them that they're doing wrong in our culture. And yet, that's what the church is called to do. So you're fearing the confrontation, and at the same time, you're supposed to examine yourself. You don't want to be walking in the darkness yourself. You can't save somebody in the darkness if you're walking in darkness. And so you become more and more aware of your own sin, and thus there's kind of a double whammy when it comes to trying to restore a brother or sister in Christ who has gone astray. There's no question that it's just easier to live by dogmatic worldly slogans like laissez-faire, live and let live. Just let people do their own thing and they'll let you do your own thing and we'll all get along. But that is not Christian. That is not a biblical ideology. When it comes to the way that God has specifically designed the church to function, The body of Christ is not supposed to operate that way. Instead, Scripture teaches us that we belong to one another in the same way that, say, two fingers belong to the same hand, or the hand belongs to the arm, or the arm belongs to the torso, or the torso belongs to the body. We belong to one another. We are all part of one body. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. You're going to want to keep a thumb uh, on that verse today as we go through our passage in Genesis chapter 14, because this passage is really a picture of what we see in Galatians 6.1. Galatians 6.1 says this, it says, Brothers, it's talking about sisters too, by the way. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, plural you, who are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And this is a central part of what we're called to. This is something that we are all called to do. When Paul says, you who are spiritual, who's he talking about? Is he just talking about pastors? No. He's talking about everybody. He's saying this is everybody's responsibility, who is, everybody who is spiritually mature. And that would ideally, I guess, include pastors, but it includes everybody else as well. Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 12 to 16 say this. Let's start at 11. And he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. For what purpose? Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, not just the pastor, but the saints, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or mature spirituality, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in Him in every way, into Him who is the head, into Christ. And from the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's what the church is called to do. And that's going to involve growing. 
We are here to grow. We are here to build each other up in our spiritual maturity. And so when Paul's talking about you who are spiritual, go and restore a fallen brother or sister in gentleness, that's who he's talking to. He's talking to people who are mature, spiritually mature. And yeah, this is a challenge because it involves engaging in warfare with very dark spiritual forces. And it requires learning to walk this fine line that you find between boldness and meekness. Between being brave and being humble. And you have to be bold enough to speak the truth. Because if you don't speak the truth, nothing's going to happen. So you have to be bold enough to speak the truth. And yet you have to be meek. You have to be humble enough. You have to have a spirit of gentleness because you need to do it in love. And so as we study Genesis chapter 14 today, we're going to see Abraham or Abram demonstrate this type of brave and yet humble faith. We left off. Chapter 13 ended with Abram and Lot parting ways, and we continue reading about a war that breaks out in the land. And wish me luck, because there are some crazy names in this passage. Kurt, do you want to read this? Okay, I'll do it then. Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 to, uh, 1 to 12, right? 1 to 12. In the days of Amramphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shem Eber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedor Laomer, but in the thirteenth year, they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kader Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in the Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shabeh, Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. When the king of, then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amramphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. That wasn't so bad, was it? This is actually the first time in all of Scripture that we, actually, that we read about a war. That we, we read about some kind of war breaking out. And that's not to say that this is the first war that ever broke out. I'm sure that it was not. But this is the first time that God's people are involved in a war. That it affects God's people in some way or another. Now if you remember, see this is the first time we've, we've had a war mentioned 
In, verse, or in chapter 13, that was the first time we saw somebody with incredible wealth mentioned. Do you think it's just coincidence that you find the first war after the first person being mentioned who has incredible wealth? Maybe. I mean, that would be an argument from silence at best. So maybe, maybe not. But it's maybe wise just to make note of the proximity of the war and the wealth. And one of the interesting, one of the fascinating parts of this specific text is that archaeology has actually confirmed all of this. Uh, It's confirmed the historical reality of these kings. It's confirmed the fact that there was some kind of great war. This land has been excavated and uh, having verified one of the kings, or all the kings' names and the destruction that was left behind, one archaeologist wrote this. He said, quote, I found that every village in their path had been plundered and left in ruins, and the countryside was laid waste. The population had been wiped out or led away into captivity. For hundreds of years thereafter, the entire area was like an abandoned cemetery, end quote. So we're talking about a, a real historical war here, and this war, this, this physical historical war, paints a spiritual picture for us. This war was, was real. These kings were real. And while this would have only been, you know, in, in our day and age, we would look at this and say, this is just a little skirmish out in the countryside, you know, compared to what we're used to seeing in warfare. At the time, this was a major, major regional war. But what we see here, I'll give you the, the Cliff Notes version of what happened in this war. There were nine kings. There were five cities, five first, which were ruled over by these five kings with crazy names. And they'd been under the authority, under the rule uh, of four eastern kings and cities for a period of 12 years. And so finally, the five revolt against the four. And while you think that five kings, each of whom has his own army, they, they should be able to do pretty well in warfare, considering that they are in their home turf, they're in their homeland. And some of these lands have these asphalt pits, these, these bitumen pits, Uh, So you would think that being on on home turf would give them some kind of huge advantage, but it doesn't. In fact, what we see here is that the invading kings, the, the, the four who rise against the five, they know the land better than the kings themselves who own the land. As some of these kings who, who own the land head for the hills, they, they run off and they end up falling into these pits and dying there. Others were undoubtedly killed. Other people were undoubtedly killed. And some people were taken into captivity. The reason, if you remember, the reason that Abram and Lot had parted ways in the previous chapter was that Lot had pursued prosperity above a love or a trust in God. And so he saw the land towards Sodom. He saw that it was lush. He saw that it was prosperous. He looked out and he said, man, I've got so much wealth. I can get wealthier over there. And so he goes out there and this is a lush land. And, and he's not going to be living alone out there. I mean, there's already a town out there, a city out there called Sodom. Ezekiel 4, uh, 16 verses 49 to 50 indicate that the Sodomites were living in such excess. They had excessive food. And so maybe it's no surprise that these people who were prideful and who were arrogant were 
totally caught with their guard down. They were not in any type of condition to defend their property, to defend their city, and so they get ransacked. And as a result of the plundering, as a result of the war, like I said, some people were killed, some people fled to the hills, and some people were taken captive. And Lot is one of that last group. He's taken captive. Lot becomes a prisoner of war. And all the things that he had brought into this land with him were gone. They were taken from him. All the things that he had gained from going to this land, they were all gone as well. Lot suddenly is left with absolutely nothing. He goes from having this huge amount of wealth to having absolutely everything taken away from him. He's left with absolutely nothing. All the things that he had lived for. All the things that he had longed for. All the things that he had loved and desired taken away. Before parting ways with Abram, Lot had looked to Sodom. He had longed for Sodom. He moved toward Sodom. And look at verse 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. He's dwelling in Sodom. And this is only the first of, of, of many, many consequences to come that will occur as a result of his poor decision. And this is a reminder, as Galatians chapter 6 says, that a man will reap what he sows. Sodom is a picture of complete rebelliousness and defiance and rebelliousness toward God. And since Lot had chosen to identify with this culture, since Lot had chosen to go to this culture, he's going to suffer when they suffer. He's going to suffer the same consequences that everybody else in the city suffers when they are judged. And the principle here is simple. If you want to live and identify with the world, if you want to live and identify with the culture rather than with Christ, you will suffer when they suffer. Abram was a friend of God. Lot was a friend of the world. And this is why James would write, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What does it mean to be a friend of the world? It means to identify with the culture. It means to identify with the system in the world which rebels against God. And if you want to identify with them, James is telling you that you are making yourself an enemy of God. You are putting enmity between yourself and God. And this is the danger of living or longing or loving anything anything in the world more than God. To pursue something else above and beyond God is to make that thing, that person, whatever it might be, an ideology, is to make that your God. And therefore, it is to make enemies with God. It's to put enmity between yourself and God. But God is gracious. And God is slow to anger toward His children. He disciplines His children. Why? Not out of condemnation, but for the same reason that a loving mother or a loving father will discipline their children because they want what's best for their children. You couldn't have guessed it from Genesis, but Lot is a righteous man. Peter confirms for us 
that Lot was a righteous man. And this is one way that I know that the Bible was inspired by God. It was breathed by God. Because if Peter had just read the book of Genesis, he never would have reached the conclusion that Lot was a righteous man. But God tells us through Peter's pen that Lot was a righteous man. He's a child of God. But he's chosen sin. He's chosen to pursue sin. And being captured, therefore, was for his own good. This is God's discipline unto Lot. And the the, the irony here is that having lost everything that he owned was actually this enormous blessing from God. How counterintuitive is that? To think that if you lose everything, it can be God's blessing unto a person. God disciplined Lot by allowing him to be taken captive. He wasn't killed, right? He didn't have to live as a refugee in the hills. He's taken captive and he loses everything. God disciplined Lot as a way of reminding him of the foolishness of living for something, for anything other than God. So this was God's way of reminding Lot that he had no business identifying with the world. That he had no business living in Sodom and being himself a Sodomite. And so this story illustrates the consequences of living for worldly treasure and carnal pleasure. When a Christian decides to do what's right in their own eyes, when they, when they say, forget about what Scripture says, that doesn't apply to me, or I just don't care what Scripture says, I don't care what God's Word says, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. When they do that, they end up in the absolute worst kind of slavery. Willful slavery. Willful slavery. Slavery that could have been avoided. Bondage that they don't need to be in. And that is the worst kind of of slavery. But every one of us is a work in progress. And most of us have to learn this lesson the hard way. Some of us have to learn it more than once. Some of us have to learn it more than a few times. Not everyone from Sodom gets taken captive. Some are killed, some run to the hills. And at some point, one of the refugees makes it all the way up to Abram's camp. And he somehow knows, he must have been a friend of Lot's, he he somehow knows that Abram would care about Lot. So we continue looking at verses 13 to 16. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner, These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Haba, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. So for the first 12 verses of this chapter, there's no mention of Abram other than to note that Lot was Abram's nephew. He was Abram's brother's son. Abram 
stayed out of the way of these kings who went to war. It was, it was wise for him to avoid getting involved, getting in the middle of this war between the kings. These kings are fighting for land. These kings are fighting for freedom. But Abram has nothing to fight for. Because he knows that God has made some promises to him that this land is going to belong to him and his offspring. So he doesn't need to get involved. This, this skirmish, this war, has absolutely nothing to do with him. He has no vested interest in getting involved. But, as soon as he learns that Lot has been taken captive, he jumps into action. As a Christian... It's never easy, and it is never convenient to go after a brother or a sister who finds themselves in the clutches of Satan, who have pursued sin, pursued something other than God, and so they find themselves in the clutches taken captive by the enemy. It is never easy or convenient. It is always easier to just say, Send somebody else. But our calling in Christ is to mature in our faith. It's to mature, to to grow up in our faith, and it's the responsibility of the mature believer to restore those who have gone astray. Now, I would suggest that if it's somebody that you don't know, that you don't lead the charge at least, it might not even be wise to get involved. Sometimes the wisest thing you can do is pray. But When it comes to a church body, we're supposed to know each other. That's part of loving each other. And so part of growing in our faith is pursuing those who are pursuing sin. And there is nothing that will grow you up like doing something like this in the right way. Lot has been completely selfish. That's what we saw last week. We saw that Lot was, was totally rude to Abram, right? Abram had the right to all the land. He, he had all the right to, to all the wealth. But Lot comes up and basically says, you know, there's not enough room in this town for the two of us, so what are we going to do here, Abram? And Abram says, pick what part of the land you want and I'll take the rest, right? He was totally self-serving with Abram. He hadn't been kind with Abram. He hadn't been gracious with Abram. He certainly hadn't treated him lovingly as you would expect him to do. And so he ends up in this predicament as a result of his sinful choices. And with that said, if you were in Abram's shoes, wouldn't you have the temptation to be thinking, serves him right. Man, he's, just, he's getting what he had coming. He's getting what he deserved. He's just reaping what he has sown. And to just take a back seat and watch it all play out and to say, well, you know, God's sovereign, so you know, I'll, I'll just let God deal with him. No, that's, that's not what we're called to do. That's not the type of attitude that we are called or instructed to have towards sin, toward our brethren as God's people. The compassionate self-sacrificial love that Abram has for Lot is a foreshadowing of the kind of compassionate, self-sacrificing love that Christ had for His people. Think about it. He's reigning in heaven for all of eternity. 
He's got all authority. He's, he's sovereign over it all. And he decides that he's going to humble himself and rescue these lost sinners who hate him, who hate everything about him, who hate his sovereignty, who hate his goodness, who hate his grace. And yet, he steps out of heaven, takes on flesh to pursue the lost and to lay down his life for his sheep. He could have come up with every single valid excuse you could think of. He had every excuse in the book to just stay home and do nothing. To stay on the throne in heaven and just let us die. Abram has every excuse in the world to just let this play out and let Lot have what he has chosen. To let him have the portion that he has chosen. But this compassionate, self-sacrificial love is the love that has saved us. And it's the kind of love that we're supposed to have toward one another as well. We can gather some really important insight, some really important principles about going into spiritual battle to restore a brother or sister from the life of Abram and, and what he does here, how he reacts here. The first principle is this. If you're going to pursue a fallen brother or sister in Christ, you need to be living a holy life. And when I say you need to be living a holy life, I'm not saying that you have to be perfect, because you're not, and I'm not either. I'm not saying that you have to be sinless, because you're not, and I'm not either. And if that were the qualification, if it required that we be completely sinless, then none of us would ever have the obligation of pursuing a fallen brother or sister. No, what I'm talking about here when I say living a holy life, the word holy really means being separated. It means being set apart. Not being of the world. You're in the world, but not being of the world. Think about it. If if Abram had chosen to go with Lot and to move to Sodom where he, could, where he could be identifying with the world, he too would have been taken captive or, or, or killed or he'd be running for the hills. The reason that he can go in and find Lot and rescue Lot is because he's in the world, but he's not of the world. He's living by the promises of God. He's not living for all the enticements of the world. So what does it mean to be in the world, but not of the world? To be in the world, it means you're physically here. It means this is where your feet are, this is where you are, this is where you are planted. But to be of the world means to be ruled by sin. It means to be, to be carnal. And so, we're not to be ruled by sin. So to be holy means to be, to be set apart by God, not being ruled by sin, but being ruled by Christ. Separate from the world in the sense that we don't love or value the carnal pleasures and treasures, the godless things that the world loves and values. Listen, the only way that you can help a brother or sister who's walking in the darkness is if you yourself are walking in the light. So the first principle is, if you're going to pursue a brother or sister who's gone astray, who's walking in darkness, you need to be living a holy life. 
you need to be walking in the light. The second principle is use wisdom. Use wisdom when seeking to restore somebody who is in the clutches of sin. Abram comes up with this brilliant plan of attack, dividing his forces to launch this surprise attack in the night. He caught the enemy off guard, and sometimes when there's a brother or sister who is astray, who's gone astray and they're walking in sin, they will do everything that they can to avoid you. They will do everything that they can to put off having to come face to face with you, to risk the idea of you confronting them in their sin. So be persistent and be prayerfully wise. And under the category of wisdom, by the way, I would say don't go alone. Now sometimes you do, you should go alone. Matthew 18, 15 to 17 says this. Jesus is talking and he says, If your brother sins against you, this is talking about personal sin. One-on-one, somebody steals something from you, somebody lies to you, somebody does something sinful unto you. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So this is talking about interpersonal sin. Somebody sins specifically against you. Jesus says the first step is to go alone. You go alone. You you. you Try to call them to repentance. You try to restore the fellowship that you are supposed to have with that person. And Jesus says that if that doesn't work, go back and bring more with you. Bring two or three people. So the two or three people are now confronting this person and and trying to call this person to repentance. And if that doesn't work, tell the church. And what's the church supposed to do? The church is supposed to pursue the person. The church is supposed to try to restore the person. And then even if they don't, if they don't even listen to the church, then what are you supposed to do? Then you're supposed to treat them like a Gentile or tax collector. Which basically means treat them like they're not a brother or sister. It's kind of an excommunication type of thing where you don't, you don't recognize them as a brother or sister of the faith because they're walking in the darkness. And they won't come out no matter how many people who love them and who are seeking their best interests pursue them and attempt to restore them. So be living a holy life. Be wise. That part of that is not going alone. That's why Paul in Galatians 6.1 uses plural you. You who are spiritual. You, plural. Number three, be bold and yet be humble. Be bold and yet be humble. That's a mature faith when you are bold and yet humble. Where where did Abram get the bravery here? How, How could he be so bold? It's because of his faith. He knew that God was with him. He knew what God had promised him. And he's living by those promises. That's not to say, by the way, that he was brash. He was bold, but he wasn't brash. And a lot of people get those two things confused. They think it's the same thing. Like if a pastor gets up and just speaks hatefully or aggressively that he's being bold. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Bold 
and brash are completely different. To be brash means to be arrogant, relying on yourself, relying on your own insight, thinking too highly of yourself, being prideful, being arrogant. To be bold just means say what needs to be said. When you don't want to say it, when you don't want to confront somebody, when you you just want to avoid the conflict, say what needs to be said. Do what needs to be done. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him how? In a spirit of gentleness. And then Paul adds this. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So be bold and be humble. Keep an eye on yourself because there's a chance that if you go, you'll be tempted to sin too. So he says, keep an eye on yourself lest you too be tempted. Tempted to what? Tempted to develop a hero complex. Tempted to think too highly of yourself. Tempted to take too much of the responsibility upon yourself maybe. Thinking that this is completely your responsibility. It's a shared responsibility. It's our responsibility, but it's also the Spirit's responsibility, the Holy Spirit's responsibility to to work in that person, to convict that person. We can't convince somebody to feel conviction. All we can do is say what needs to be said. Tell somebody when they are walking in darkness and leave the Holy Spirit to do his part. So Abram finds Lot. He finds all of Lot's possessions. He finds all the possessions that were plundered. And he leads Lot and all these other captives back home. And you have to wonder, this is a long trip. What was said on the way home? Let's talk about this first. Where's home? Where's Lot's home? Where is he taking Lot? Sodom. He's taking him right back to the place that Lot wanted to go. And you have to believe that Abram was trying along this long journey to plead with Lot, to reason with Lot, to convince Lot to come back to his camp with him. But Lot stubbornly goes right back to his same old ways, pursuing prosperity rather than living by God's promises. God's goodness should have led Lot to repentance. It should have given him some kind of perspective. It should have been a reminder to him, hey, you're living for stuff that you can have today and lose tomorrow. It can be just gone tomorrow, so why would you live for these things? But it's almost as if Lot doesn't even notice God's grace. It's like he's not phased by it. He, it just totally flies over his head. He doesn't even seem to notice it. And so the fourth principle, if you're going to pursue a brother or sister in Christ, and there are probably more principles than that in, in, this, uh, in this text, but these four are, are important. The fourth principle here is that there is no guarantee that if you pursue somebody, that they will repent. There's no guarantee of what they will do if you try to pursue them when they've gone astray. But that much isn't your responsibility. It's not your responsibility to to have somebody feel convicted and to repent. God grants repentance. That's between them and the Lord. Your responsibility is to say what needs to be said in a spirit of gentleness 
seeking to restore them regardless of what the person does or doesn't do with what you have said to them. So coming back from rescuing Lot and from rescuing from, from recovering all the, the possessions that had been plundered, this is a moment of triumph in Abram's life. And one of the principles that we've seen in Abram's life is that a moment of triumph is often followed by temptation. Abram is likely to be feeling pretty good with 318 men to have destroyed all these armies and taken back all the stuff. There's a temptation in his flesh, I'm sure, for him to be feeling pretty good, for him to have developed a hero complex. And so it's no temptation that after this, this victorious high point, this, this great triumphant moment, he's now going to face a moment of temptation as he, wel- as he gets welcomed back by two kings. Let's continue in verses 17 to 24. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shabeh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. That's some good theology, by the way. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. So Abram, he comes back and he's welcomed by two kings. Two kings who are completely different. He's welcomed back by the king of Sodom and he's welcomed back by the king of Salem. And these are both kings who are in the land of Canaan. They're both Canaanite kings, but they represent opposing values. They represent completely different, completely opposite priorities. They represent completely different ways of life. So first, Abram is apparently welcomed back by the king of Sodom. Bera is his name. Now, Sodom, we've already talked about this. Sodom is, uh, was a wicked city. It's a picture of complete rebellion toward God. And a city or, or, or nation's leader is a reflection of the people. So there's no question that Bera himself was a wicked man. A city won't be wicked if they have a righteous king because the king would do something about it. So, Bera, King Bera of Sodom represents the world and all of its carnal enticements. The, the name Bera means gift which kind of carries the implication that the world will try to bribe you with some type of gift, some type of enticements in exchange for your allegiance. But keep in mind that the name Sodom means burning. Burning and gift. So be careful of what you 
choose because the things that you live for, if you're living for the world's gifts, if you're living for the world's enticements, it can all be gone in a second, as Lot should have learned, but didn't. And the irony, the deeper irony here, is that Bera, again, his name means gift, he comes with no gifts. He comes completely empty-handed, telling Abram, you know, you, you can keep the stuff, just give me the people. The second king that he meets, the second king who welcomes him back, is Melchizedek. His name means king of righteousness, or my king is righteous. And he's the king of Salem, which is where you get the name Jerusalem. Jerusalem, city of peace. His name means peace, or the name of of Salem means peace. This is Jerusalem. This is the king of an early form of Jerusalem. And Moses tells us that he was not only a king, but he was a priest of the Most High God. Both Psalm 110 and Hebrews chapter 7 make it clear that Melchizedek is a foreshadowing of Christ. Some people think that he was Christ or that he was an an angel or, or something like that. No, Hebrews chapter 7 makes it clear that he was resembling Christ. He was a foreshadowing, an image of Christ, our King of kings, our Lord of lords, who gives us peace with God. And he's our priest who intercedes on our behalf always pleading with the Father, praying on our behalf to the Father. This chapter is about two battles that took place. There's the physical battle between all the kings and then Abram going to rescue Lot. There's that battle. But then there's also a spiritual battle here where Abram is forced, he's faced with the opportunity to have an allegiance to this king that represents the world and to have an allegiance with this king that represents the righteousness of God. This one, this test, the spiritual test, is the real test of character because of the temptation for Abram to fall in a moment in which he would have been vulnerable. He would have been tempted to be prideful and he would have just been tired. He's just come back from not only a battle, but from a long journey home. But this is where we see the strength and the maturity of Abram's faith. Now, this isn't to say that he's got a perfect faith, because we're going to see him fall into sin plenty more times. But in this moment, in this instance, he's got a strong faith. He's got a very mature faith. His faith is bold, and yet it's humble. It's, it's, it's courageous, and yet it's, it's meek. He had the legal right to claim both the people and the possessions when the king of Sodom made him this, this offer of allegiance. But he resisted the temptation to seek the world's help or to receive the world's help in becoming wealthy, in, in receiving worldly gain. Abram lived by the blessings that were given to him by God rather than from the bribery or the enticements of the world. How could he pass on such an incredible fortune, a whole city's fortune being his? How could he pass on that? Because he lived by the promises of God. Because he lived for God, the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and he knew that God would bless him in accordance with the sovereign promises that he had made to Abram. And so with that said, Abram didn't need the world's help. All he needed was God. 
And in the moment, he knows that. And so he lives that. And we learn that prior to this battle, he had made an oath unto God. He had, he had sworn a vow to the Lord to take nothing from the spoils of war. Not even Lot. Not even Lot. Lot had to make the decision for himself. This chapter is a crystal clear illustration of what we read in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Let's read it again. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Friends, you were enslaved to sin. You were born in slavery to sin. But Jesus humbled himself, and he sought you. And He purchased His people with His own blood. And He set them apart. He made them holy, set apart for His purposes and for His glory. And yet, we are all a work in progress. And we all have moments of weakness. We all have moments when our flesh nature gets the best of us. Which is exactly why we need one another. We need people to pursue us when we fall into sin. As your pastor, that's something that I take very, very seriously. And I hope that you guys would love me enough that if I were to ever be in sin, not only would you fire me, but you would pursue me and seek to restore me to the faith. Convince me to stop walking in the darkness because that's what love does. Love doesn't let somebody just sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So we've got to take this seriously. We're all a work in progress. And that's why we need each other. We are specifically instructed to operate the way a body does, belonging to, an, to one another, holding one another accountable, and to pursue and to restore one when somebody wanders astray, wanders into sin. So may the Lord grant us an abundance of grace to do so both boldly and humbly in faithful obedience to Christ. Regardless of the rejection that we may face from that person, the animosity, the bitterness that we may face from that person, we would do it not to please men, but for the glory of God. The gospel is to repent and believe. But it doesn't stop there. You keep repenting. And you keep, you keep believing. That is the journey that we are all on. Repent and believe daily. The challenge is to keep doing it. To keep repenting. To keep believing. To bear, grow, uh, to bear fruit and to grow in maturity. And as mature believers, as spiritually mature believers, to love enough to care when one of our brothers or sisters falls into sin. And to care enough to confront and restore with bold and humble faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for sending Your Son to pursue us and to restore us in our relationship with You, knowing that there was nothing that we could do on our own, that we did not seek You, that we did not seek peace with You, but that we were enemies and yet you sent your son to restore us 
and to give us peace with you. And so, Father, help us to see the seriousness of sin and to turn from it ourselves and to love those whom you have redeemed enough that we would pursue them and seek to restore them should they walk in darkness. Give us bravery. Give us, give us courage and boldness to say what needs to be said and do what needs to be done. But give us grace to be humble, Lord, that we may see that we are all, we are all vulnerable. We could all do the same thing. And so give us compassion, Lord, and bravery and humility to hold one another accountable and to love one another as you love us for the glory of Christ. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.